All right. Welcome back, everybody, to the podcast Natural Awakening, where I invite generally cool and interesting people to have discussions about the things that I think matter most, um, philosophy, consciousness, space and time, uh, fun stuff like that. Uh, and my two eminent guests today uh, are uh, Roger and Andres. So maybe Roger, you can introduce yourself, returning guest, for those yeah. who may not know. Yeah, well, I've um, already been on this podcast, so keep it brief. My name is Roger Fisdell. I'm, let's say, an advanced meditator, and as a result of lots and lots of meditation, I've wound up with a mind that's um, ever presently centerless and has really high well-being, incredible reduction of suffering. Um, those are kind of my interesting claims. I don't know if there's anything else you'd like to add to me, or but there I am. There you are. All right, uh, Andres. Yeah, yeah. One of the members of the Qualia Research Institute, and uh, yeah, have been uh, talking with Winston and uh, Roger for I guess I guess like something like half a year or a bit more, and uh, been uh, really enjoying kind of like their ph phenomenological accounts of things that, to, to some extent, have been uh, kind of like part of our theory at at, at, at the institute, um, and uh, yeah, very excited to kind of like try to develop a vocabulary and a way of talking about these exotic experiences in a way that actually is illuminating. I mean, like the kind of the, the bar that I try to, to reach at the very least is to say something that is novel, uh, meaningful and non-trivial. And in this case, yeah, we're going to talk about, I guess, the, the, the experience of time, the phenomenology of time, and hopefully we can actually, you know, say things that are conceptually clarifying and may, you know, open up to even yeah perhaps empirically testable predictions so yeah excited to to dive in great that's the intention anyway to uh, at least shed some light on our confusion maybe not you know eliminate it completely but uh, to be clear about what's unclear um so to begin with i think it would be useful if we could set some kind of uh to let people know the structure we're working within uh so i'm going to invite andres to you know kind of take us into to the world we're operating within um, maybe you could say something about uh, indirect realism to start off, just, you know, a sketch. Yeah, totally, totally. So, I mean, as a matter of introduction, I think that differences in philosophical background assumptions uh, are kind of like inevitably, you know, they inevitably sneak in into conversations and, and dialogues and, uh, and debates. And like, uh, to a large extent, people don't realize uh, oftentimes like the ways in which their philosophical background assumptions may actually differ. And, uh, yeah, you know, like that actually sets you in very different paths. And uh, oftentimes it's impossible to actually come to an agreement because of like implicit differences. Uh, so one of the things that we value at QRI quite a lot is uh, to actually make really explicit kind of like all of our philosophical background assumptions <laughs> to the extent that it's possible. Um, and so, yeah, like the, the conversation we're going to have today, uh, hopefully can be actually grounded on kind of like a shared set of background assumptions that of course, yeah, we can refine or we can explore alternatives, but at least to have kind of as a, as a basis, um, for, for, for dialogue. And, uh, one of the key ones that, uh, uh you're alluding to it's, uh, yeah, this distinction between direct and indirect realism about perception and I mean, to be clear, there's really kind of like a spectrum of possibilities here, but just talking about kind of like the, the, the two extremes you have, you know, on the one hand, what's kind of often described as naive realism or common sense realism, 
is this idea that you can actually perceive the world directly. You know, the reason why you see the world around you when you open your eyes is, you know, because it's there. And uh, if you look at kind of like old time uh, illustrations about how vision works, uh, you know, even all the way up to, you know, the 1500s, uh, you will kind of like see these tentacles going out of your eyes, kind of like <laughs> sensing the world and kind of like, you know, bringing back the sense impressions or something like that. So, you know, and of course, like phenomenologically, and, and we will come back to this, uh, there's really, really this sense, you know, for most people of kind of like reaching out into the world when you open your eyes and kind of like sensing it in one way or another. Now, all of these uh, within our paradigm would be explained in terms of um, the dynamics of your inner world simulation. And this is, uh, you know, as opposed to direct realism about perception, uh, we believe in indirect realism, which is this idea that, hey, you actually never perceive the world directly. All you ever perceive is a internal world simulation that your nervous system is creating, uh, kind of like crafting for you to um in some sense like mistake for the real deal mistake for reality because that's yeah kind of like an, an adaptive illusion um in some sense actually yeah like mistaking it for reality it's uh evolutionarily beneficial because you don't have to kind of like spend one extra you know second of processing to to wonder like okay how does this match the real world and like is there a kind of like anything that i might need to compensate for you just kind of like assume it's it's correct um and yeah so go ahead, Roger. <laughs> yeah, I might just jump in. I've got an incomplete thought here that I'll just kind of put it and see how it bounces off people. But I'm thinking you could kind of construe the awakening process as the degree to which you don't experientially buy into indirect realism. So a lot of what happens on this process is, okay, yeah, you begin with naive realism. You think you're actually perceiving the world. And then you might come to see, oh no, all of these are impressions in my consciousness. But then you're still thinking as if there's like an arena, the space, which is sort of objectively real that holds all that fake world simulatory hologram stuff. We have to realize, no, even that arena, that space is part of the, the model, it's part of the simulation. And this will include for the time in which it takes place, but also uh, that there is a, uh, a being that's knowing all what is in the world simulation. And you realize, no, they're all models. They're all models. So, yeah, yeah, yeah no, that, that's great. Uh, I think, I think like for the, for the purpose of this conversation, for sure, like that's, there's going to be something to, to focus in, which is, um, that exactly to a large extent, people might actually agree with some aspects of indirect realism they might say something like yes for sure like you know the colors that i see are not out there you know like colors are not frequencies of light there's some kind of manifestation in in in, in my experience or some aspect of the palette of the world simulation but uh but time is different you know like time is something that you you can kind of like perceive directly and, and inhabit and be and like you know you can't conceptualize of a world without time or something like that but uh, yes, we will talk about the experience of time is actually also just a parameter of the world simulation. And <laughs> it may be a very deep parameter, uh, kind of like really basic in a way, but it is, yeah, kind of like another, <laughs> another facet of, uh, of, um, of the illusion in a way. Um, yeah, uh, go ahead, 
Cool. I'm going to jump in uh, to to say that um, what uh, what we're going to be talking about today is uh, phenomenal time. So carrying on from this indirect realist theme, uh, there's a distinction to be drawn between phenomenal time, which like uh, we've already said is kind of the time we experience, the the time that is part and parcel of the world simulation that you are currently inhabiting and seem to be located within uh, at this moment. Thing that there are objects uh, and a subject, maybe multiple if you're in a conversation, uh, unfolding in time or as an evolution of time. Uh, so we're talking about that sort of time, not uh, not the time that's measured with cesium atoms. Is that uh, checks out? <laughs> yeah. Well, all right. Um, finally, maybe you could introduce the notion of qualia formalism. So what what is that? Yeah. So that's a you know, there's a lot of uh, concepts uh, that we explore at QRI. I would say qualia formalism is one of, of the concepts that we are in a sense kind of like married to, like things that, uh, okay, like um, if this is not true, then probably a lot of the work that we're doing is ultimately nonsense. If it is true, we're probably, you know, actually hopefully contributing to, to the science of consciousness. Um, so it's, yes, kind of like a super core assumption and it really kind of like, sets apart different theories of consciousness uh, from each other. So qualia formalism postulates that every moment of experience corresponds to a mathematical object such that the mathematical features of that object are isomorphic to the phenomenology of the experience. Um, so this kind of like describes consciousness in the same way as we might currently describe electromagnetism that uh, people used to think of, you know, there's lightning and there's magnets and electricity and, you know, a compass and all sorts of, you know, diverse phenomena that intuitively might feel somewhat connected. Um, you know, but back in the day, they might have thought of like, well, no, actually, you know, there's like different substances that um, account for all of these different phenomena. But then it, it turned out that there were actually, you know, um, Maxwell's law of uh, laws of electromagnetism and, and you know the, the four, four key equations actually account for the behavior of all of that disparate phenomena. So likewise, you know in, in the context of, uh, of consciousness, qualia formalism would say that consciousness will look more like electromagnetism than you know something like the essence of life, which as far as we know it's not actually you know it's not a particular substance. it's kind of like more of a yeah an emergent effect of, uh, of you know, complexity on, on, on many ways. Um, and so qualia formalism um, really kind of like makes each moment of experience a, an extremely precise thing. So there's kind of like a, almost kind of like a fad in, you know, philosophy of mind to think of consciousness as something that is very fuzzy, that there is no ground truth to like, okay, what, what, what are you experiencing right now? Um, if you read kind of like, yeah, people like Daniel Dennett, um, uh, I mean, Keith Richards, there's actually a bunch of uh, people kind of like thinking in this way, which is that, you know, for, for, there's really no such thing as kind of like a moment of experience in a, in a concrete way, because there's really just a lot of information flow. And, you know, from a certain point of view, you know, this is the experience from this, a different point of view, this is the experience, or maybe different, even different parts of the brain may have kind of like different accounts of like, what is the experience that is ongoing? And so they, they might say like, okay, there's actually no ground truth about it. But with qualia formalism, you know, you actually make the, the very, very bold claim that no, there is a, an absolutely precise and objective um, experience that you're having um, 
that is, you know, as much of the natural world as, for example, the 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 rest mass of the electron. You know, like the the rest mass of the electron is a very very precise number, and is something you can measure in a lab, and it's you know ultimately you know, a facet of the universe. Likewise, <laughs> whether you're suffering or whether you're happy and to what extent <laughs> it is going to be something like that, some, you know, objective physical feature of, of the universe with precise mathematical properties. So yeah, that's a qualia formalism in a nutshell. And what, and, and what a nutshell it is. Uh, so each instant of experience, you know, the space-time slice that makes up, you know, this organism coupled with the environment has a concrete topological structure that makes the experience as as it appears you know phenomenologically is that a decent yeah. way of saying it yeah yeah i mean i think like a an, another key background assumption is uh discrete moments of experience and uh, slash uh, kind of mirrorological nihilism for 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 consciousness um but yeah i mean this is this is kind of a uh, important for 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 a conversation um where you know, a lot of people think of consciousness as kind of a stream, kind of like, okay, you have like maybe the brain and maybe the brain is generating consciousness and the metaphor of like a river or, or something like that. It's kind of like this constant, you know, wellspring of, of experience. Um, and, you know, from that perspective, there's really kind of like no objective way in which you can say like that you had like a moment of experience, you know, because like the experience is actually connected over time it has like kind of this temporal extension um and i think that this is also kind of like a fairly common way of thinking about it in, in neuroscience you know like uh in neuroscience oftentimes they will say something like well um activity in the brain that happened like 200 milliseconds ago is still contributing to your current experience is sort of like there is this uh, you know 200 millisecond window of like information integration and in in some weird way you know, experience is actually kind of like smeared over in time. Um, it doesn't, it's not happening, you know, exactly in the present because it's actually the result of integrated information and that takes, you know, takes time in, in the physical world. Um, as, as we will see, uh, hopefully, <laughs> that's actually kind of like a really confused and weird way of, of, of thinking about it that, that generates like actually many more paradoxes than, than it actually solves. Um, what, you know, the, the, the assumption that we're going to be working on is the idea that like no actually um there are like discrete flashes of experience um that actually sets apart each moment of experience from from the other ones and they're like objectively different they're objectively different they have an objective boundary um maybe one way of kind of approaching these uh is to think about it kind of like in terms of the block time universe which is like uh this idea that like okay all of time is, you know, already there. <laughs> uh, it's kind of like similar to a spatial dimension. Um, and uh, if, if you look at it from that perspective, you know, having like temporarily extended experiences would be really, really strange because that would mean that the, the experiences are kind of like actually existing as kind of like this like spaghetti in the, the block time universe. Um, and in that case, you know, you actually would simultaneously be across all of the you know the, those um regions of of the dimension of time um meaning that you wouldn't actually experience differences from, from one moment to, to the next so um whereas if you have kind of a discrete moments of experience model um really the the thing that you have to then 
wonder about is like where does the feeling of the passage of time come from uh if actually you, you know you're just experiencing kind of these like snapshots these um um yeah kind of like frames in, in, in a movie you know like intuitively you look at a frame and like okay like this is not moving you need to kind of like integrate information over time to do so so uh the zero time arrow i guess like the the the, the overall kind of like idea of um the phenomenology of time is that in each moment of experience you actually are encoding within the structure of the experience also information about the past uh but it doesn't mean that you're like instantly you know connected to the past it doesn't mean that you're kind of like smeared over in in kind of like this you know 200 millisecond window or something like that it, of course like information from 200 milliseconds ago does feature in your current moment of experience but the way in which we would be modeling this is that um, that information, in some sense, yes, it, it took some time to be processed, but by the time it actually gets rendered, it is rendered in the present in a way, uh, except that you know, it's rendered in the physical present, but <laughs> that information is uh, within your world simulation rendered in the phenomenological past, which is encoded <laughs> in the moment of experience so it's, it's something really yeah really tricky and weird that like even though it feels like okay this just passed within this paradigm it's actually currently passing because it's currently part of the the the, the moment of experience that you actually are uh anyway i i mentioned a bunch of things and uh curious about your reactions yeah so within this conception imagine you know for very very uh, simplicity's sake we have like a, a linear uh extension of time and at each point in that timeline there's like a point instant of experience uh that actually each at each point instant there's kind of an encoding of the past and the future perhaps you know in like predictive action modeling uh yet that is still just part of that point instant it's not actually you know smeared across that extension is that yeah yeah, yeah. i mean i i would add that um uh in, in the way we think about it at QRI, like experiences are not points. They they actually might actually be um, like spatiotemporally extended objects. Right. It's just that they're probably pretty thin on the time dimension. I mean, they're probably they probably don't have like a you know a, like a zero extension in the time dimension, but they're probably pretty thin relative to their extension in the in the spatial dimensions. Um, but uh, if you were to kind of like zoom out in the in the in, in the actual universe, uh, and and be able to see how the experience is kind of like knitted or or woven in the physical world, um, maybe one way of visualizing this is kind of like the evolution of soap bubbles. <laughs> like if you know if you have a kind of like I guess like yeah if you had like a a soda or like I guess like soapy water and like you 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 blow blow with a straw in it and you see all of these like you know the evolution of a bunch of bubbles. Um, so within this model, kind of like an experience would be like one bubble that like emerges and grows and then dissipates. But, you know, for a fraction of, of, of space time, it is kind of this blob that, that arises. Um, what, what the zero time arrow is saying is that information about previous blobs <laughs> is encoded in the structure of the current blob um, in such a way that, yes, it represents information that in some sense already happened. Um, and it's going to represent it in the phenomenal, phenomenal paths within that blob. Okay, uh, Roger. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm just thinking this description reminds me of a Boltzmann brain, if I'm saying that right. So you, you just, there's a random conglomeration of atoms in the universe that for the 
briefest moment form the shape of a brain with a, a consciousness and experience that it had a whole life and that could be you right now but in the next moment those atoms are going to dissipate like that could be your experience is there a, um, something analogous here yeah no absolutely that uh, i mean what the zero time arrow definitely predicts is that there's going to be ways of tricking the system into believing that it just experienced something that it actually never experienced and yeah that's that seems fine like i don't i don't think that's i mean like it, it is kind of upsetting to realize that's that, that's probably possible but I, I i don't see why not uh of course yeah i mean like i, I don't think we are boltzmann brains uh right now for for a number of arguments that are like yeah maybe outside of the scope of the conversation but but in some fundamental sense, I think it's possible. I mean, I just think it's uh, it's unlikely. But uh, but you know, in in I guess like the maybe maybe the uh, moral of the story here is that uh, at least in some fundamental sense, it is kind of indistinguishable. Our experience is indistinguishable of that of a Boltzmann brain that like happened to be, be assembled this way. In, in the sense that like yeah, you don't actually have a direct connection to the past, to the physical past. Uh, that you can actually, you know, probe and and make sure it's actually there. Like other than, you know, it's just part of your internal world world simulation. It's part of your representation. All right. I think I think now is the time to introduce. You know, why why would you have all of these wacky thoughts about the nature of time? Uh, you know, time is just it's here. It's unfolding. It's you know one moment, then two, you know, then three. What what's what's the big deal? And maybe now uh, we could introduce exotic experiences of phenomenal time. Um, taking from uh, meditative phenomenology, but uh, psychedelics uh, as well. Um, and I don't know, either one of you can jump in uh, with, with what comes to mind. <laughs> yeah, I mean, happy to mention about the, uh, the psychedelic stuff and uh, maybe I'll wrap up with, yeah, like uh, something where Roger can definitely inter interject in. So um, I mean, the first approximation, uh, psychedelics intensify experience uh they kind of like energize your experience but they do so in a non-random way um and like you know a very classical effect is uh, essentially like tracers or trails after images where yeah essentially kind of any scene that you experience gets kind of replayed um over and over again and one way of conceptualizing this as well is kind of there is a um you know the the decay curve of qualia over time over physical time actually uh becomes like fatter, like everything lasts longer. Uh, and, and so like you have this phenomenon where um, essentially experience kind of like stacks on top of itself. And in, in that sense, uh, uh, in a very key way, uh, psychedelics tend to in some sense like enhance or, or extend the zero time arrow. It kind of like makes how much information you're uh, about the past, uh, you're encoding in the present moment um much 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 more oh sorry like it, it's adding more information about that essentially so to, for example like you may be hanging in a, in a room uh for 10 minutes then you go to a different room and like you know for five minutes you still have the feeling that you are in the previous room like things like that happen essentially kind of like the qualia doesn't turn off <laughs> uh there's something that like keeps it you know keeps it going so within you know Within that sort of description, you could visualize as kind of the the way in which the zero time arrow gets constructed makes it so that you have like an extended, like a longer zero time arrow. Um, so that's kind of like the feeling of time expansion 
and and here's the thing like it's this is not you know the more superficial way of talking about the the phenomenology of time which is like like oh gosh like it felt like an hour or something like that like i had so much fun that it just felt like five minutes or something like that because that's just kind of like reporting your judgment of the extension of time is not actually getting at the raw you know quality of your experience of time in the moment which i think is like much more interesting you know it's almost kind of like much more crazy and and bizarre that you can modify that as opposed to just you know your judgments of how long did something last um but um most of the studies that you know investigate kind of a uh time the perception of time really are like studying you know the judgment of time intervals uh which yeah i don't think is like as profound of a topic as the actual feeling of you know time uh roger you, go ahead yeah, okay, on that note, because something I wanted to ask you was how the pseudo time arrow would play into this idea that actually we have multiple internal clocks tracking time. So um, I know from personal experiences, I've had an experience that in, in one sense, it felt like uh, time disappeared, there was an eternity, but then after that eternity moment ended, I could recollect and think, Oh, that lasted for about three seconds or so. So there was something, something was tracking time. Something else wasn't tracking time. How do you fit that in? Yeah, <laughs> no, that's a great question. So, so uh, the pseudo time arrow, yeah, I mean, essentially interweaving together information about the, the past. Um, my understanding here is that that usually relies on a, on a number of metronomes, kind of like working together to stitch together the experience. Um, and you could imagine that there is, you know, a good number of them, like, let's say like, there's like 20 key metronomes in your nervous system. Like maybe there's like a couple primary ones. I mean, I'm pretty convinced that the thalamocortical circuit and like, you know, the, the, the resonant frequencies of that probably accounts for a very big chunk of your feeling of the passage of time. I don't know, maybe something like 60% or something like that to the extent that, yeah, if you disrupt that, like a very big chunk of your phenomenal time is going to be disrupted. But there could still be like a bunch of other like, you know, minor metronomes that are still ongoing and like are still stitching together information about the past in, in, in some key ways. While maybe center stage is not, you know, center stage could actually be, you know, geometrically smooth or um, actually lack a, you know, a, a, a time arrow, a, a pseudo time arrow. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, the, the kind of like, uh like very illusory really well made time <laughs> really well well made like you know phenomenal time is going to be made with like really precisely coordinated metronomes so um if you think of kind of like a, a really sober perception of time oh, oh actually i would say like if you want to kind of like take sober perception of time and like enhance that and kind of like what is it like to have kind of like a very crisp feeling of minimal time in a non-distorted way, probably something like uh, classical classical stimulants actually do that. Like I would say like amphetamines or something like that in in reasonable doses, like will give you like a very, very solid kind of like set of metronomes to stitch time together, uh, as opposed to, yeah, something like, <laughs> like LSD, which will create all sorts of exotic metronomes and their interactions are going to be really, really, really complex and non-trivial, but yeah. Um, I guess like what I'm what I'm driving at is that uh, as long as you still have like some metronomes um, that are not disrupted, 
you will be like in some sense like tracking and stitching together phenomenal time to some extent which i suppose like that actually does go away in uh Niroda Samapati, right um or in Niroda more generally okay <laughs> you guys so here i'd like to bring in just some paradigmatic examples from meditative phenomenology where the pseudo time arrow at least apparently uh disappears entirely um and you know some of these i have personal experience of some some not so much um so in what, what might be called in some circles like hard jhana or you know like fully absorbed jhana uh, like that taught by uh, Paak Sayada, a burmese meditation master and his students people like Stephen Snyder, Tina Rasmussen, and uh, Beth Upton. The, uh, uh, maybe I should say what jhana is. Jhana is uh, a very absorbed uh, state of concentration, a decidedly altered state, um, which is entered by means of concentration. And when you make the state shift into that state of absorption, the concentration, again, takes kind of a, a nonlinear leap. Um, so these are at the far end. These states I'm about to describe are at the far end of that uh, spectrum of concentration. Um, and in, in these states, uh, the object of focus for the meditation, maybe you're familiar with, uh, you know, some, most people are familiar with forms of meditation in which the object of focus is say sensations of breathing. Whereas in these, uh, these states of absorbed concentration, uh, the concentration has already gotten to such an, an extreme that, uh, you begin to have uh, synesthesia, uh, synesthetic effects. So the point of access for uh, this type of jhana is a synesthetic perception of, of light that has kind of merged with the sensations of breath. Uh, and then that uh, synesthetic perception of light slash breath, though it's more of a visual phenomenon, uh, then kind of expands to overtake the entirety of the phenomenal field such that uh, most um, ordinary topology within the phenomenal field just drops away. So there isn't any kind of subject object structuring. There isn't any kind of uh, felt extent of time, um, and you're only aware of how long you had been in the state or really any qual any qualities of the state after having come out of it. The phenomenology of the state itself is just absorption, bliss, brightness. Um, and this is, these are not states that I'm terribly fluent with, but have just enough experience to, to say as much as I've said. Uh, and then maybe, maybe Roger can say something more uh, about uh, cessation. Okay, I'll jump in then with cessation and neurotis and body, but it might be kind of interesting to talk about the other sort of more mundane beginner end as well and how time changes there. Um, so I like what Andres is saying about sort of different metronomes stitching time together. That makes sense. I have only gotten neurotis and body once. And I don't know for how long it was, probably not very long. What it is, is a total non-experience. I mean, really consciousness blacks out. There's nothing, no sense of time, self, space, nothing. And then you're back. And on the surface, that sounds like, well, you know, most people, well, when I go to sleep, you know, there's no experience. but you know, my God, in comparison, when you compare sleep, deep sleep, dreamless, deep sleep to Naroda Samapati, it makes uh, dreamless, deep sleep seem quite active in comparison. And I think perhaps what accounts for it is, yeah, less of the metronomes tracking time. 
because when you come out of Naroda Samapati, there's this, oh my God, there was nothing, nothing. Like I, like dead, gone. Whereas when you come out of sleep, there is still a sense of, yeah, I was always oh, asleep for some hours or, you know, you kind of know it's the next day because there's a part of you that's internally still tracking time. Uh, Naroda Samapati does not um, feel like that. One, it doesn't feel like anything while you're in it. And then uh, when you come out of it, it's very strange. But um, I've only gotten it once. I'm still going to explore that. I'm planning actually in May to do uh, a retreat and uh, try and get it more. We'll see what more phenomenology will bring out of that. Yeah. yeah. To, to mention something quickly about this, uh, I think one one frame is it's not that the metronomes are not active it might be that they are like perfectly synchronized like that's another like option so um to some extent like if you think of uh, a moment of experiences like being composed of some kind of like these like weaving together of a pattern uh that encodes the phenomenology of time uh in some sense like each metronome can only perceive itself through its interference with other metronomes so it is almost kind of like even if you're actually, you know, like rotating, even if you're actually in some sense, like moving or oscillating, that may actually be perceived as like exactly nothing, if there is no other metronome that is interfering with it. Uh, because you're, you just have like no way of, of seeing yourself or seeing the impact of yourself or <laughs> seeing the reflection of yourself in, in any other pattern. It's kind of like you're, um, there might be some kind of indistinguishability, uh, potentially. And like, uh from the phenomenology and i mean I'd, I'd be very curious for you to elaborate on on it like it sounds that as as you come out of neuroda samapati things begin hyper synchronized would that be the case yeah it's hard for me to remember I mean, it's a very sort of sort of foggy airy state you come out of and there is there's a sense in which it takes a long time to reboot to kind of remember your life remember where am I? Who am I? What day is it? <laughs> you know, what planet <laughs> am I on? It it has that sense. Um, yeah. Uh, I maybe we could differentiate here for people between um, something that's more common for uh, dedicated meditators, especially if they're doing you know vipassana insight meditation, especially on retreat. There are uh, so-called cessation events or niroda or you know, uh, moments of moments of, you know, what in, you know, Naroda Samapati is like an extended event. Um, maybe you could differentiate between the two, uh, Roger, just so everybody's on the same page. Yes. So um, a cessation is when consciousness blips out and there's no experience for, I mean, it's a fraction of a moment. Naroda Samapati is of the same type, but of a, a much longer duration in physical time. But I guess phenomenologically, I guess in, in both, there's no sense of time. Um, but yeah, I mean, cessation is much easier to uh, attain to and quite noticeable once you, you can begin sort of, you know, the, the, the lead up and conditions to it, you can track when it's going to happen. And one thing I like to do is to listen to some binaural beats when I'm meditating. And with the binaural beats, there's a constant sort of buzzing sound, a constant tune. 
And then when the cessation happens, subjectively, there's no experience during a cessation, but you know, there is this kind of jump cut because you, you know, with this third-person objective measure, the binaural beats, you know, presumably, you know, not a feature of my, my well, it's all in my mind, but the the tone which which otherwise would have been constant actually like becomes unconstant. There's, you notice a little zzz, oh, zzz, uh, as an interesting reference there. I'm remembering a long, long airplane ride I took years ago, <laughs> noticing exactly what you're describing. I was listening to music, so it, it, but is that's that's what you do like frequently um, to to like track. Uh, not lately, but I have done in the past. <laughs> it's just it's just it's cool. It's like a it's like a third person uh, metric. I hadn't yeah, very very cool. Um, I want to skip back to something uh, Andres was saying about um, synchrony. Um, and maybe this can also lead us into um, discussion of like why 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 in say like the you know full absorbed jhana would subjective phenomenal time cease, um, and then mm, what 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 does that have to do with the topology of experience, the symmetry of experience, the synchrony of experience, and then uh, you know going into coming out of cessation or nirodha uh, samapati, um, then you know walking around everyday life. There, there can be some profound alterations to just the everyday sense of time when that subject object structuring of the phenomenal field, when that drops out for good. And I'm going to ask Roger to speak about that and Andres to, you know, speculate what, what's going on. That's a lot, uh, but see, see what you can do. Oh, I was going to throw it over to Andres, but if you want to jump in, Roger, go. Oh, okay, okay. I, okay, I misunderstood. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> one quick note on the, yeah, uh, Niroda, Niroda, Samapati, like, uh, it also, I mean, definitely from creep reports of 5MEO DMT, like, at least there's, like, phenomenology that seems to be somewhat shared. Uh, of course, I think, like, it's it's probably a different phenomena, although there's, like, some, some interesting overlap, but uh, this phrase uh, has stuck with me, which is this feeling that as you're coming down from 5MEO DMT, there's a threshold you cross where you remember that you're part of a realm that contains beings like oh like beings existed like like yes <laughs> there's kind of like this remembering of like even these very basic these very very basic facts about this reality and like like wow oh like separation and like we're different <laughs> there's different points of view and like okay like all of that was completely gone from like your world simulation for <laughs> for a while um so so yeah, and like this connects to what you, what you asked, which is uh like essentially yeah the, the the like synchrony and absence of information and uh, there's kind of like several routes I could take this, but I think I'll take it through the like not not to you know talk too much about these uh, kind of like connected with yeah this paradigm of uh, attention and awareness that um it, to some extent like attention you can think of it as something I've, I've talked about recently, which is the kind of oscillatory complement of your awareness. So whenever you pay attention to something, um, it's not only, you know, that you're experiencing the thing you're paying attention to, there's also, in some sense, like a background within which that attention is happening. And I, I would claim that, you know, whenever there is kind of like a contraction uh, of, of, of attention, there is a kind of like dual correspondent kind of a expansion of awareness somewhere else and so 
that that kind of like explains in a way like why there's so many kind of like layers to attention right that you can concentrate on on a dot in the center of your vision and uh there's there really is such a thing as kind of like how concentrated you are on it almost kind of like a physical you know quantity a f physical you know like measure of it and in, in in this model what that would essentially be is to what extent is the field of awareness actually coupled together and oscillating coherently together with your object of attention so a, a very 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 high level of concentration would actually involve a very big percentage of your field of awareness being in a kind of a oscillatory complementarity relationship with the object of attention so that you're actually flipping back and forth the thing is that you may not actually represent this you know like the thing that you're actually representing is the object of your attention but if, if you pay attention to the phenomenology whenever there is a very strong object of attention there is kind of a back and forth um between it and a field of awareness that is in some sense perceiving it i mean of course like that is itself a construction it doesn't mean that you know that field of awareness is literally kind of the perceiver of you know the the, the object of attention but that is part of how the, the world simulation gets constructed. So um, if you take this to kind of like the, 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 the very, very extreme, you know, one attractor would be kind of all of the experience being kind of the oscillatory complement of like a, a highly, highly concentrated, contracted object of attention. Um, but that it's not as symmetrical as you know you could actually get like th that is like a very symmetrical experience relative to everyday life but you still have this kind of like massive symmetry breaking operation which is you know distinguishing within the entirety of your experience like one region that gets contracted and like that yeah in a sense that's a symmetry breaking operation that contains information whereas if you kind of like go to something even more symmetrical uh you may talk about uh, essentially well, something I talk about as like exotic attention or exotic awareness, where you actually stop doing this thing, where there's like a region of, of your experience that is, you know, oscillating with a region that is contracted uh, with your experience. And instead you do things such as, you know, the, the idea of like awareness is already aware of itself. Essentially, you're trying to kind of uh, stitch together uh, oscillatory complements that don't actually aggregate into like regions that are contracted and uh, I think like at the limit of these sort of practices what you actually have is rather than your experience oscillating together with like a region of it you have something much more balanced which would be like let's say the entire experience is strobing together and like that still is some kind of like oscillation but it's like an oscillation with itself like it itself is its own oscillatory complement as opposed to like distinguishing a region within the experience to do so. So um, my, my guess would be that essentially, yeah, the more ecstatic, timeless states of consciousness actually are those that have kind of this exotic awareness with the absence of kind of like a contracted attention. And that will be like a very, very smooth kind of, and within our theory, like very high valence, very blissful, you know, untroubled uh, kind of experience. Totally, everything you just said totally tracks with my very, very limited experience of uh, like the, the jhanas that are described, you know, in the Bishuddhi Manga and elsewhere. So, you know, thumbs up with it. Like you start with that contractive focus 
um, you know, oscillating between, and then eventually your concentration reaches such a point that there's kind of a merger, and then there's there's just you know the the, the nimitta oscillating with itself in kind of a, a stable symmetric configuration. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, um, yeah, if, if I jump in here, um, yeah, how I would have described my experience pre my last big shift was attention darting around very, very quickly. And there was this yeah, in, out, in, out, in, out. And I could notice things appearing and disappearing really quickly, but there was this kind of gestalt shift. And yeah, there's a bit of a, a rigidness to it, despite, you know, I could sort of speed it up, get very concentrated, but it, yeah, had some negative valence with this sort of um, in out. And now my experience uh, being much more, uh, much smoother, there isn't this in out, in out as you're describing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's, uh, I mean, uh, it would be, yeah, it's going to be lovely to try to like speculate actually how your, <laughs> how your experience is constructed within this, you know, or with, with tools like this model, because uh, I was thinking about it and like, I mean, like I talked to Frank Yang and Daniel Ingram and they actually said something like um, fourth path for them is what comes next after perfect synchrony. They're like, Daniel was saying something like, yeah, you know, like those like hyper synchronized experiences, they're great, but like fourth path is better. It's like, <laughs> there's something, you know, beyond that. And, uh, you know, the, the, the intuitive model that, I, that, that comes with me or like that, that emerges in my mind when I hear these things is that um, it sounds like, like, okay, so here's my, my latest speculation here. Like, it sounds like fourth path, it is a level of synchrony, uh, sorry, a level of symmetry that is higher than, than symmetry because, sorry, it's a level of symmetry that is higher than perfect synchrony because perfect synchrony still has, here, here's the kicker, like perfect synchrony still has a symmetry breaking operation applied to it. So like, even though everything could be like strobing, you know, with a perfect, in a perfectly synchronized metronome, there's still one way in which that is asymmetrical, which is that there is a phase component. And so like where in the phase you are is one aspect, one way in which the symmetry is broken. So my guess, and let me, I'm very curious what you think about this. My guess is that fourth path is overlapping essentially metronomes of all phases at once so that at every given point in time you actually have kind of a metronome that is waking up as well as one that is turning off and like every stage along the way they're kind of like yeah <laughs> go ahead yeah yeah this is this is great because yeah how i would have described third path was um becoming incredibly in sync to expansion and contraction and noticing expansion contraction expansion contraction or form emptiness form emptiness you know one after the other very quickly fourth path is this superposition of the simultaneity of both of those so there's one way in which i could describe my experiences i'm i'm noticing thousands of like um appearings and disappearings you know per second but the extra added insight is to realize that expansion and contraction are part of the model are empty as well you know the, the degree to which you you, you think, oh, that's still, that's that kind of movement. You can notice these, but still see, no, again, yeah, what this is, this is something that can't be formulated, uh, totally encapsulated with expansion and contraction. Those are part of the model. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so expansion and contraction in this account would be kind of this paradigm of like attention and awareness and oscillatory complementarity that as long as the attention is um, kind of a, you know, the con if most of the contraction, sorry. Um, hmm. So the, the, if, there, if the balance of contraction and, and expansion is not perfect, then one of the um, oscillations will be more contracted and the other will be more expanded. And in that sense, there's going to be a kind of a symmetry breaking of what corresponds to attention and what corresponds to awareness. But uh, yeah, if you transcend that, it sounds like you would kind of like experience things in this constant kind of like stream of awareness without like attention pinch points. Um, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. It sounds so weird. It sounds I, it sounds so exotic. <laughs> I want to I want to jump in here. So what I'm hearing um, in what you're saying, uh, Andres, is that like so imagine like maybe we can start from the bottom up. Imagine imagine you're Roger for a second. Difficult, uh, but you 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 know your experience is just simultaneous empty expansion contraction. You know at every point within I don't know the topology of your experience. Um, yeah. And say for a second, you know, I don't know, Roger, maybe you take a head injury. Let's, let's hope not, but you know, your, your mindfulness is disrupted. And then uh, horror of horrors, like the, uh, the contraction kind of like one part of the field kind of contracts uh, and then mistakes itself for something solid and separated out from that, that larger field. And I think, you know, my very, you know, speculative understanding of, of how the subject object structuring of experience gets kind of fixated in the first place, because I don't actually think it's something that is there from birth, um, is that uh, that kind of contractive uh, patterning of a subject it just becomes very imprecise language, but becomes sticky. And then in most experiences uh, for people um, for the rest of their lives, unless they do a lot of the kinds of practices that we've been talking about, um, that, that, that just kind of remains a pattern of relative uh, contraction versus relative expansion. So the more expanded complement in, in your model is the outer, like the outer world or the objects of attention, whereas this more contracted uh, thing is me over here, you know, me. Um, is that, does that track at all? Is that gibberish? No, uh, I'll, I'll just mention that like for, for everyday life, that would be the case. Uh, you like some, somebody, without much meditation experience and also without much psychedelic experience might, for example, take LSD. And then for the first time in their life, all of a sudden the contractive side uh, becomes actually localized in a place that is different than their phenomenal self. Um, and so like you, you, you can have like kind of like exotic allocation of like what part actually gets the contractive side and which one gets the expansive side. But it, it does seem to me that to a first approximation for everyday life consciousness for most people, it would be the case that, yeah, essentially the, the balance of contraction kind of like gets loaded on the sense of self and expansion goes to the phenomenal other, <laughs> as, as it were. Roger, does that kind of track with, with what you've experienced and the shift that has taken place? Well, I mean, there's one way to construe things in which you know, there, you can still talk about there being gross contractions and expansions. Yeah, I can bang my head and then there can be, you know, swelling and, and inflammation and, and notice, um, you know, 
where they ordinarily wouldn't have been detecting lots of sensations, there are lots of sensations in this sense. But there's always this, so on this gross level, there can be these undulations and you know, uh, expansions and contractions, but there's something which I, I kind of use this in a, a poetic language, so I don't take this literally, but the, you know, tuned into the cosmic micro radiation background of consciousness, this, this ever sort of effervescent um, fizz of the, the emptiness of, of all of it um, that's never lost sight of. So if I'm understanding you correctly, there's kind of simultaneously this kind of background fizz just to everything all of the time that's never lost, but within that are kind of like layered on top of that. There, there is like the gross expansion and contraction that forms a sense of the body, the external world, you know, thoughts, images, etc. That all still happens, but it's against the backdrop of that background fizz and not really separate from it. Is that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the way I think about it, you know, there's still models that arise, you know, there can be models of, uh, okay, a body schemer and, uh, you know, the self with the, the, the personality, what this, you know, person sort of is into and, and, um, but they are always known to a degree to be empty. It's like never fully reify. And then those models can also stop being projected. So yeah, again, going back to like, just a sort of a typical meditation sit and tracking time, you know, one thing that becomes evident is the, the models of which um, certain information is accessible starts reducing about, okay, what time of the day it is, what day of the week it is, you know, as you sort of meditate, those start shutting down and then you, you start entering states which you're not aware of what day of the week it is, you know, that, that information is just not, you know, depending on how deep you are is not readily accessible. You know, you come out of the meditation, you can easily say, okay, it's Wednesday. But um, I mean, this, you know, this is kind of the framework in which I'm trying to uh, relate things to. It might not be right. But... Yeah, so, so some, something to mention here, I think it's, would maybe be fascinating to explore would be, um, so within these like, okay, attention and awareness model, essentially internal representations will have a sort of complexity score. I mean, like there's obviously a lot of research on, okay, what is the correlation between like ease of processing and valence that like, okay, images that are like easier to process tend to be experienced as more pleasant. Uh, you know, at QRI, we have a specific interpretation of like why, why that is the case. But we can, in some sense, like say that, you know, some, you know, perceptual constructs are like easier to represent than others. They're kind of like um, more, more natural or more adapted to, you know, so, something thermodynamically efficient within our world simulation. Um, and if you look at, at that, um, one way of kind of like thinking of the complexity of the internal representations from first principles even is what is the minimum number of attention fixation points that I need to construct as a framework in order to sustain that representation? Um, and so, you know, something like, um, yeah, the day of the week or something like that probably requires, you know, like, I, I don't know, but like, it, it would be like a non-trivial number of them. Like, I mean, you know, speculating, you may require something like five or six fixation points or something like that to set up like, okay, the, your internal representation of the concept of a week. 
and then how that week corresponds to your life and then where in the week you are or something like that like if you don't have that minimal set of information uh encoded together you're not actually representing you know what day of the week it is um so it would seem to me then that like essentially um how deep you you go in this uh scale uh this meditation scale um could in some sense like track the complexity of these internal representations in that um if you kind of like make a list of like okay what are the things that i can think about <laughs> what are the things that i can kind of encode uh and you will see like some of them like going away before other ones that might give you kind of like okay this <laughs> the this internal representation requires nine points of you know fixed attention and like that goes first because you know you don't have that anymore in that state i don't know <laughs> Yeah, that 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 makes uh, that makes a good bit of sense. Um, I'm wondering because I'm I'm aware we've already been talking for uh, a, a while together. Um, something I'd like to get to before whenever we all need to to depart is um, Roger. Maybe you could say something about uh, how, if at all, your sense of of everyday time and maybe you know I want to connect this to valence and why experiencing the world as you do is such an anchor for consistently high well-being. And I think time has a lot to do with it, um, that most people, uh, if they're the anxious sort, uh, like like myself, or at least how I used to be, there's always this kind of pushing forward into the future uh, and pulling backwards into the past um, that seems to be mostly absent uh, for you. Uh, and why, and then, you know, bouncing back to Andres after Roger has said his piece, why you know, in, in terms of the symmetry theory of valence, why there seems to be, a, a, like speaking of like representations, there seem to be less back, you know, backward and forward time representation most of the time for a mind like Rogers. Yeah, yeah. My, we're getting to like leaning too far into the future or pulling too far back into the past. My, my friend Sean called that the non-optimal selection of the temporal depth window, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which, it's, it's interesting there. So one thing is, you know, I, I teach English online and sometimes I say to my students, I can tell they're, you can just see it in their physicality that they're like reaching into the future, trying to grab the next word. And I, I tell them as advice, like, yo, lean back and imagine you're receiving the words. And then, you know, they start sort of, uh, huh. yeah, their anxiety calms down. They start talking more fluidly and it's uh, quite interesting to see. So, I mean, my experience is, uh, Andres talked about the, the time-dependent qualia decay function. So on, on psychedelics, you get these tracers, like it's, it's this buildup of experience. You know, perhaps my experience in which like that, those cache files are being cleared out very, very quickly. Um, that the, the impressions that are left over from a past moment are less deep than they would have been. Right. And so there's a sense of, um, I mean, time is experienced incredibly smoothly and cleanly. And, you know, there's less drag to it, I could say. Um, I mean, one thing, so another salient part of my phenomenology is I talk about there no longer being a singly positioned epistemic agent. So there's no longer this sense that there is this one entity of which knows all parts of experience. Instead, the knowing is diffuse and, and spread out. And what came with this 
or before when there was the singly positioned epistemic agent, that the now could be concretized, that there could be you know, this entity of which determines the now as, as it was perceived as a more sort of solid, rigid structure, then compared to with this, this more spread out, diffuse uh, epistemology, it's like there is no one to speak of who or of what is the, the concrete now. You know, there's, there's moments of experience, but uh, it's not ardently declared by an entity of some sort. And uh, I think this uh, speaks to the, the increase in valence. <laughs> yeah, this is amazing. Uh, let me try to like go at it from one more metaphor. Uh, what I was trying to explain of like, there's every phase is like simultaneously present. And like, I think this connects to like what you just said, like there's no, I forget how you said it, like epistemically privileged uh, agent or um, there's nobody who actually can uh, claim like, okay, this is the now. <laughs> um, so if you take like a two, two um, beams of polarized light uh, that are like, orthogonally polarized relative to each other and they're like in complementary phases where like they're just aligned perfectly right so that like when one um yeah essentially they they alternate um when when they actually reach the extremes you will get this um emergent state that is called circularly polarized light where the light is essentially just like kind of like traveling in a helix and I think like maybe that is what fourth path might be getting at that like uh <laughs> that like you know synchronization would be that you have like two polarized uh beams of light but their phases are actually aligned rather than alternating in which case like you will have kind of like this like oscillation back and forth um but like if you if they if the phases are just you know i think like 45 degrees uh away from each other then actually it's always on but it's just kind of like circling around. So could it be something like that? Like you always have like attention going on. It's just that in some sense, it's kind of like circling whenever there's kind of a, <laughs> a sub agent coming up online, there's a the one that is coming up off online. Um, they alternate. Uh, yeah. Does that ring a bell? <laughs> oh, sorry, you're muted. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'd love to see a visual of that so that I could understand this sort of you know, metaphor better um yeah perhaps perhaps it could be i mean uh, another stark feature of this is a sense that information is being uh, registered so quickly that there's a noticing that uh when uh, a, a point of sense data is known it, it seems like it's known in such a raw fashion that there's a recognition uh, a lot of people talk about the here and the now. So, oh, I know something and I know it here and I know it now. And everything that I know, I know it here and I know it now. But for me now, there's this recognition that the here and the now are added tags onto that sense data that actually are slowing down the process of knowing and is not perceiving it in, a, in a, a cleaner fashion. You can remove that. And there's just this sense of data being known without relative you know, relation to a, a place or a time. That's yeah. how clean it is. 
Yeah, that's that's really fascinating. So so it does seem to me so th there is <laughs> this very fuzzy way of talking about consciousness when somebody says like it has kind of a holographic quality, meaning that like information can be in some sense like non-locally stored. Um, ultimately, I think like this is yeah, I mean you know at the most fundamental level, I think something like related to valence actually. Um, in that like for example like if, if you have like a poorly shaped object and you make it vibrate it's going to produce a sound that might be dissonant because its harmonic modes are you know next to each other and they clash and you know they produce beat patterns okay let's say you have something like that the sound the sound itself contains information about the entire object it's just kind of this interesting thing that like with something that is um in some sense kind of like uh non-local everywhere there in in some way it's like encoding information about the spatial distribution of the object so uh likewise i think like in in, in experience we have like that these like attention and awareness complements they in some sense encode information in a non-local way like the region of awareness that is oscillating together with a point of attention is going to kind of like simultaneously in a non-local way encode the information of what is going in the in the center of attention. So it seems that like okay, like pre-fourth path or something like that, um, you create these like synesthetic objects um, in order to tag information. It's kind of like you know some region of your experience um, becomes aware of some information, and then you create these like awareness, attention, oscillatory object in order to kind of like tag or, or 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 manage that information it's kind of like oh yeah this center of attention is actually responsible it's kind of the steward of this piece of information i mean and, okay like in some kind of, kind of like exotic states of consciousness like lsd or or dmt you can actually see these almost like you know playing out in 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 a very very real way where like you can notice like okay this region of my experience it's encoding a particular information, for example, a scene of my past or, or a speculation about the future. And this other region is uh, actually encoding a different information. And if the centers of attention of those two regions synchronize, then there's going to be exchange of information between those two regions. And you kind of like create this pocket that is actually aware of both things simultaneously. Um, so, and, and in some sense, yes, like we, we reason by creating kind of these like, um, centers of attention that carry specific information and then we blend them together um i think like, like yeah kind of like a lot of like reasoning and, and and logic has to do with essentially kind of the algebra of you, how you combine these centers of attention but it, it sounds then like maybe on fourth path the sort of experience that you're describing roger um you have kind of like gone to a different paradigm or in a sense the the information is holographically encoded in the entirety of the experience at all times you don't have kind of this fragmentation where oh hey this region is the one that is like in a non-local way encoding information it seems like it's just everywhere whenever it happens would that be the case yeah you, you, you say everywhere perhaps yeah i mean i wouldn't want to add like everywhere feels like something subjectively like there's a phenomenology there no 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 scrap that but other than that yes yes I, th I think it's quite funny we've been talking about this um 
that subject object split and talking about how our fourth path that's not the case yet meanwhile my camera is totally doing this sort of in out <laughs> so my webcam is not fourth path yet <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, i'd like to interject just to i'm going to put on my unified mindfulness hat for for a second and try to describe what uh it seems like the two of you are talking about relating it to my own experience putting it in um terms and see if that you know, transfers back and makes sense to hopefully both of you um, to make sure that I'm on I'm on the same page that y'all are. Um, so, in my phenomenology, um, if attention attention doesn't seem like a discrete object anymore, but uh, there's like a there there can be like a movement outwards. So, say like the the intention comes up. Okay, focus on the visual field. Uh, the intention comes up again, not as like a discrete object, but actually is just more expansion contraction. And then, uh, then there's like a corresponding expansion of whatever the object quote unquote is prioritized. Um, and there's also a sense of like tension or tautness, like throughout the whole field. And as one thing expands, there's a corresponding contraction and it's actually directional. So it's like, if I put, if, if I, you know, if, if attention moves forward, there's a contraction. Uh, and it's almost like there's this taut field just transforming um, with, with expansion and contraction at micro scales within that. But on a macro scale, that's how it feels. Like the, the field is transforming as attention moves or the body moves or perspective moves. Um, and again, within that, there's all kinds of effervescent uh, expansion contraction. Roger, does that sound anything like what you're talking about? Well, I, I wonder here, I, I know Frank Yang talks about popping the bubble of the mind. And that really rings true to me. There is a sense, you know, before there was, there was this container space and yeah, you could talk about, okay, tautness within that container and, you know, perhaps, yeah, noticing the, the, the micro expansions and contractions within it, but there was still these, these bar this barrier to, the mind space and now those barriers or that bubble has been popped it's no longer being represented in the mind so it's like even if you i don't know yeah i bang my head there's like little like pinch points within this uh network field it's still it's not contorting the whole space because there's no boundaries here there's no gotcha. hard edge that gets pulled in when the rest of it contracts at one side or something so I'm, I'm tracking what you're you're saying in, in real time and i can see and this is this is an edge for for me where it's like i can see that that sense of, of boundary you know behind front up down back um that boundary is actually like constructed in the moment and it's something that can be perceived but it's not it's not automatic the uh seeing the emptiness of that boundary all the time that's not automatic as of yet well, well i would say it's it's one thing to notice the emptiness of that boundary it's another thing to which the mind just stops representing that boundary altogether so i described right. my experiences it's no longer that oh there's this boundary sort of appearing and disappearing and i'm noticing it's emptiness it's just straight out not even representing that gotcha emptiness. yeah you know? yeah yeah <laughs> so i know what you're talking about but that is uh, not my baseline things to look forward to has that uh, influenced your representation or like, for example, uh, the feeling of being inside a building? Like, is that impaired in any way? Um, no, I mean, I'm, I'm okay. still 
highly functional, but there is, I mean, it's just it, the sense of just infinity sort of boundlessness all the time, despite, yeah, how big the room I'm in. So. But is there, is there any way in which like that has, I mean, of course you're like very functional and obviously very, very, very articulate and like clearly, you know, <laughs> really, you know, embodied in, in this world in a, despite like your state of consciousness, but I'm wondering like, is there any situation where like the fact that you're not by default generating that boundary may actually be misrepresenting the situation in, in, in some way, like, you know, not ontologically, but like, like maybe you, you might be a little bit slower in like noticing the boundaries of the building or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I like, I like this question. This is something I would like to investigate and research. It's like, what are the actual downsides of this? Cause <laughs> so far, uh, I can't find any, but, um, let me think about that. Let me, let me, uh, check in. You know, if I try to do, um, it's called tightrope walking, you know, what slack lining or something like that. Am I worse than the average person now? <laughs> mm -hmm. And also like uh, looking into like things like visual illusions or, or, or things like that, like it would be amazing if, I mean, like I, I've seen definitely some research of like, okay, like people who meditate a lot have like more precise, you know, visual perception. So actually they don't fall for some visual illusions. I wonder if like we could find like the complementary like are there visual illusions that become activated on fourth path that normal people can't see that yeah. would be yeah one one person funnily one person asked me do i still fall for the um the hollow mask illusion you know you take a mask you turn it the other way around do you still see it as um convex rather than concave and uh it's like yeah <laughs> i'm not a sociopath i still i still fall for that illusion so yeah. Maybe maybe illusions having to do with a uh, amodal tracking, like yeah. like I mean I, I wonder if like the information content of your of the amodal component of your experience might be like lower in average, which like maybe like makes some representations actually a lot better because it's like more dynamic. You can reconstruct it uh, faster, but maybe it also like fails to track some pieces of information that maybe in some puzzles would actually be helpful. I mean, I don't know, would be. <laughs> hey, um, yeah, if you find them, send them to me and I'll, I'll tell you how I. <laughs> All right, so we covered not only, uh, not only uh, temporal uh, dimensions of uh, enhanced valence, but also, but also spatial. So there's a, you're, you're enjoying uh, spaciously uh, boundless and uh, somewhat atemporal uh, freedom all the time. Very nice. <laughs> uh, and hopefully with, with, with polyformalism, we can get uh, you know, concrete uh, topological isomorphic structures to describe all of these things. Yeah. No, I mean, I think I'm, I'm, I'm very um, optimistic and like very excited in, in this area because I mean, even like it sounds like there's kind of like a, a hierarchy of like, you know, to what extent like these changes in your experience become valence enhancing. I mean, like this idea that like, okay, yeah, yeah, like there is this threshold <laughs> removing the, uh, you know, the, the outer edges of your mind. Um, like, yes, that has like a valence boost of, <laughs> I don't know, like, you know, 45 like stress dissipation units or something <laughs> like that. Um, but yeah, it would be good to have kind of like a, a list of all of the, you know, things that happened to you guys that like, hey, like actually this was like valence enhancing and like, 
probably all of them, I would predict, will involve some sense of like on binding and some sense of uh, defabrication and some sense of like smoothing of space and time, a phenomenal space and time. Um, or like actually just like not representing boundaries. I guess like that's the other, like <laughs> how big of a boundary was this and to what extent you're not representing it anymore. And that probably generates a big shift in, uh, yeah, valence. I mean, to the extent that the energy flow within your world simulation becomes less viscous because of the absence of the boundary, then yeah, that's would be predicted to, to in increase valence. Um, one, one other thing I was going to mention is that, um, and another thing, yeah, we're, uh, probably yeah uh towards the end of this but um is that a um one one way of conceptualizing perhaps uh what you guys have been training is um that you're tuning in to a particular wave propagation type or type of wave propagation within your nervous system that essentially is composed of waves that go through each other essentially, as opposed to waves that uh, collide against each other and reinforce each other. Um, and you're kind of like tuning into like, you know, precise wave characteristics that don't essentially give rise to these collisions. Um, and if that is the case, then essentially the phenomenology of this would be kind of like waves of energy that go through your entire nervous system unimpeded by anything because they're not you know, self-interfering and generating kind of these additional non-linearities. And I'm curious, yeah, how much uh, this description tracks both of your experiences. Uh, what, like uh, Shinzen has talked about equanimity, which is the main, uh, if you like, within unified mindfulness, equanimity is the main predictor of valence. Uh, you know, max out equanimity, whether the sensory input is pleasurable or, or unpleasurable. In fact, if it's terrible, if you max out equanimity, um, the, uh, the, the friction, you know, the self-interference you're describing that, you know, tends to zero as equanimity increases. Um, so, and the kind of the simultaneous expansion and contraction of space, which can be perceived that has the flavor of waves of space mutually passing through or, uh, so yeah, I, I, I have like a felt reference for what you're describing. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I, I totally agree um i'll just say i think you know uh andreas i love the work that you're doing and i think yeah valence structuralism is barking up the right tree and um uh really really tracks with my experience and uh yeah just fantastic <laughs> <laughs> awesome no that, that's that's great to hear um no i think i, I definitely feel like we are at the 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 the, the foot or the feet, the feet of a huge mountain at the beginning of a long, long journey uh, of like actually grounding these things in a coherent ways. Um, and yeah, I mean, hopefully I'll uh, advance enough in my meditation that I'll actually also know what it feels like. <laughs> Not only some of the other, yeah, you know, exotic experiences, but also, yeah, like actual... Andreas for fourth path. Andreas I just think about, you know, I have this thought actually, if we could get you to fourth path, you could do the world of good, you know, so much more than me that just, yeah, let's get you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. No, I think we, we should work as a team. So it's uh... <laughs> uh, all right. Um, I think unless there are any final uh, comments or um, things you'd, you'd both like to explore, uh, maybe we can Maybe we can wrap things up. 
Um, there was one thing you mentioned, perhaps you want to go into this, Winston, but just the like etymology of um, sati and nibbana, as uh, Andreas just mentioned, like unbinding and sati being instead of translated mindfulness, but remembering. But you can speak to that more than I could. Sure, sure. So um, the word from Pali or Sanskrit that is um, commonly translated as mindfulness uh, is in Pali it's sati, or uh, in Sanskrit it's smriti. Um, and those uh, both literally translate as uh, recollection or, or remembrance. So uh, if, you, if you read the discourses in the Pali Canon, uh, you'll often find like the, the, the sutta on loving kindness. You know, one should sustain this recollection. One should sustain mindfulness of loving kindness. One should sustain recollection. So remembering uh, of loving kindness and by that actually generate the state and recollect it continuously. Um, uh, so there's an interesting connection there uh, between uh, this remembering function, which is kind of a binding uh, of, of, of experience, um, and then the, the, the goal of the Buddhist path, if you like, uh, Nibbana or Nirvana, uh, Pali Sanskrit. Um, Tanisaru Bhikkhu has laid out uh, quite neatly um, the, an etymological case for uh, Nibbana um, sometimes translated as extinguishment, but uh, if you look at the prefix and the suffix, you could actually uh, trace it to, um, you know, un, ni, or near, that, you know, that, that prefix is kind of like a, uh, a negative prefix, and vana um, is uh, to bind. So you could literally translate uh, nibbana or nirvana as unbinding. So we have all of these phenomenal states, which, uh, you know, on a Buddhist understanding, normally just uh, collect, uh, entangle, and enmesh us in a world of suffering, you know, samsara in another world, in another word. And the Buddhist goal can be seen as uh, progressive and sometimes sudden uh, unbinding or cutting through that tangle uh, until you have a, a, a nice uh, symmetric uh, unbound state uh, that is uh, cool from the agitations of, uh, of samsara. Um, so it's not uh, nirvana, uh, nibbana or nirvana in, in Buddhism is not a a positive state or an object or some kind of heaven outside of space and time. It's the, the absence of stress. Um, it's, it's, it's negative. It's a negative freedom. It's a freedom from, not a freedom to anything or of anything. It's a freedom from bondage in a, in a quite probably literal sense, I think, as uh, Andres is uh, elucidating here. You, you unbind your phenomenal states and then they, uh, they anneal into a harmonious, symmetrical, high valence form. Uh, and yeah, that, 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 that's, that's, that's one way of conceiving of it anyway. So thanks. All, thanks all those uh, BDSM meditators out there now, they're like, oh, I don't want <laughs> 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 bondage. <laughs> uh, that's, that's, you know, that goes into areas of, of, of Tantra that I'm not uh, qualified to speak on. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Um, there was this impression I, I definitely once got, which is that uh, uh, just as, well, I guess like dark night of the soul type phenomenology, like, like restlessness and things like that, that like there is this sense of kind of a, you're kicking, kicking the addiction to reality. Um, so like there's probably some shared paths between opioid withdrawal and like dark night phenomenology, I would suspect. Um, there's a sense on 5-MeO-DMT that you experience that sensation, but 
for the entirety of reality as a whole. Oh, yeah. So I guess like rather than just for an addiction, it's like, okay, like, yeah, you know, <laughs> need my coffee and like kind of like this, yeah, like kind of a sticky quality to, to that phenomenology. But then realizing that like you're experiencing that unsticking, but for reality as a whole, including things such as the, you know, perception of time and space and like how, <laughs> yeah, this sense of like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize I was addicted to the phenomenology of time and space, but uh, <laughs> apparently I am. <laughs> yeah, it's a, you just, just, we, we all, we all have a really bad reality habit to kick, you know, it's. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Excellent. Um, where, where can folks find you? Uh, uh, whoever wants to go first. <laughs> yeah, just find me on uh, yeah, qualicomputing.com and uh, qualiaresearchinstitute.org. Uh, I also yeah, tweet probably probably one of the reality habits. <laughs> but yeah, the, the, you can find me on Twitter like uh, at aljcalypso with a, with a K uh, or just searching my name, probably easier. All right. And Roger? Yeah, um, people could send me a message on Facebook, Roger Thisdale, and also on Discord. Uh, if you can look up my name, it's Roger This, and then hashtag, and then some numbers. I don't know. <laughs> I'll tell you later. Winston can put in the description right. if anyone wants to message me. And I've I've got a website. I've got a Twitter. I'll put the links in the description. And uh, yeah, thanks thanks to you both for, uh, oh, when, for coming on. One, one last thing is, uh, yeah, uh, of course, like if you've, if you've reached this, you know, this point in the podcast, you're probably quite interested in this. So yeah, definitely an invitation to look up um, the Facebook group called Qualia Computing Networking and uh, answering the questions and agreeing to the rules and I'll let you in. But you do need to answer the questions and agree to the rules. Um, I'm not accepting everybody. So, but uh, if, you, you, if you heard this podcast, most likely, Must you know. be an indirect realist. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> you must pass the philosophical test. Yeah. <laughs> well, if, you, if you've made it this far, I congratulate you. I tried at the beginning to, you know, uh, get our terms defined, but I'm, I'm afraid at a certain point, the conversation just took on its own momentum and uh, we may, oh, well, it, uh, if you've made it here, congratulations, welcome. And uh, I suppose, suppose goodbye. Uh, infinite <laughs> bliss to you all. Uh, may you in, in, enjoy annealing and unbinding to your heart's content. Uh, goodbye, people. Beautiful. Bye. <laughs>